You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love More Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. If you believe it will work out, you'll see opportunities. If you believe it won't, you will see obstacles. And that's from Wayne Dyer. Good morning, good morning. Happy Saturday to you, December the 14th. I want to thank our listeners, those of you, our loyal listeners, been with us for over 14 years. And if this is your first time tuning in to Off the Shelf, thank you for joining us this morning. We have an insightful and talented author who has great advertising and marketing experience for our listeners who are writers themselves that we will introduce to you in just a few moments here on Off the Shelf, and we're excited and can't wait to introduce this morning's guest. But before we begin, I'm asking you how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Do you love mystery? You know, the, those mystery shows, I, I was a huge Columbo fan, and then there are other mystery shows that you just want to know who did it, why they did it, what was the motive, how did they do it. If you love mystery, I really encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. But even more, if you value relationships, there's a soulmate relationship in the book, and it is it is a powerful soulmate relationship that is is very believable as you see the ups and downs that this relationship goes over through decades. But there's a complicated father-son relationship I love the the friendship that these five guys have who meet at co- at a college in Pennsylvania. But one of them, or maybe more, is involved in a murder. So I encourage you, if you love mystery, you value relationships, to get a copy of Love Pro Over Me. It's an e-book and in print format. If you don't see it on the shelf, just ask the clerk for it. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, et cetera, et cetera. If, again, if you don't sit on the shelves, you can ask the clerk to order you a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney. So please go out and treat yourself to a copy of Love Pour Over Me and let me know how you enjoy the book. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is Ned Barnett. Now, Ned is a marketing – remember I told you guys he's a marketing, advertising, and public relations Innovator, he has published more than 25 nonfiction books, including State of the Art in Hospital Advertising and Hospital Marketing Step by Step. He has spoken at healthcare events, and that's a hot topic. That is, I mean, because the costs around healthcare are just getting out of control. But he has spoken at healthcare events and served as a marketing, public relations, and writing adjunct professor at four colleges. Ned has appeared on the History Channel and in the New York Times, Time Magazine, and Newsweek. His fiction and other nonfiction writing focuses mainly on military exploits. Among those novels are Bloody Skies Over Bloody Ridge. First, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing Sylvester Stallone. I'm up in my mind. Who drew first blood? But Bloody Skies Over Bloody Ridge, First Shot, and Lafayette. We are here. You can discover more about Ned at barnettmarkham.com and that's b-a-r-n-e-t-t-m-a-r-c-o-m.com and I'll spell that again b-a-r-n-e-t-t 
M-A-R-C-O-M dot com. And, of course, you can learn more about Ned by listening to this off-the-shelf interview. We are honored to have Ned Barnett join us on Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio this morning. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Ned. Well, thank you very much. Uh, what a wonderful introduction. I really appreciate it. We are excited to have you here. I always learn a lot when I'm researching for the uh, guest interviews, and then even more as the guests share as they respond to the questions here on Off the Shelf. So the first few questions in there that I'm going to ask you, I ask every guest on the show, and I say this often, I used to just go right into the questions, and then I got a feedback from listeners who said, could you just give us a little backstory on a guest before you go into the questions? So every guest gets asked similar to these questions, first about four questions I'm going to ask you. So to kick it off, Ned, if you could tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up. Okay, sure. Um, I I grew up in a, in a lot of different places. I was originally from Ohio. Uh, and we moved we, we, in the Cleveland area, and then uh, we moved to uh, Illinois for a while. But I, we, the whole family moved down to uh, Georgia, and I, that's where I grew up. And I lived and worked in in the South until I moved out here to Las Vegas um, about 30 years ago. Las and so Vegas. My, still, my family's still there. My kids and grandkids are there, and. Um, that's where my heart is, and I try to show that in some of my writing as well. How what part of Ohio? Because I'm from Dayton. What part of Ohio? Oh, okay. Curious. Um, Cleveland, suburban Cleveland. Oh, 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 um, oh okay. But I know Dayton. And it's probably. Well. I'm an aviation fanatic, so I've been to the museum there. And, and, oh yes. And oh. yeah, and it's a beautiful town. Beautiful, absolutely loved it. Now, what did you dream of becoming when you were a kid? Actually, I wanted to be a writer. Well, first of all, I wanted oh. to be a pilot, uh, but, but my eyes are not very good, so that kind of ruled that out. Um, I had been appointed to the Naval Academy and failed the eye test. I volunteered for the Air Force and failed the eye test, that kind of thing. But um, I, I always wanted to be a writer. And, um, you know, I, it's been a blessing to me that I've been able to be a writer, you know, in public relations and advertising and marketing, you do a lot of writing. So I did a lot of that, but it also allowed me time and direction to write uh, my uh, books. And so far I've had 39 books published. And Oh my goodness. And congratulations to you on 39 books. I'm one of those slow writers. Today, a lot of writers knock a book out in a couple of months. I just keep working on it, yeah. working on the same story, and eventually I come out with another one. But kudos, kudos. I was going to ask you next, how old were you when you knew you wanted to be a writer? So you were, what, five, seven? How old were you when you knew this is what I want to do? And you know what? interesting, when you put on your response to how old you were when you knew you wanted to be a writer, what attracted you to writing? Well, um, two interesting questions. Um the first time I knew I wanted to be writing was when I was in the, in the summer uh, before my the third grade when I created a neighborhood newspaper and distributed it in my neighborhood. It, I had to type each one. This was before word processing, and I didn't. 
I had a kid's typewriter. I didn't have a real typewriter. It was, it was a laborious process, but I wrote up a newsletter and distributed it. Um, I've always wanted to uh, be able to share information. The reason I was a professor at four different schools, uh, believe me, an adjunct professor, you don't do it for the money. You've got to love to help people. And um, I try in all my writings, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, to help people um, with their lives to, to, to gain insights that will help them in their own journeys. And, I, I, you know, in, in the public relations field, what I do is I help uh, writers primarily because those are my clients and uh, fulfill their own dreams. I help them, uh, you know, as a book editor, if that's what they need, uh, book designer, stuff like that, to create the book. But then I take and help them promote it and market it so they get sales and that they can achieve their dreams through their writing. So it's all just it's all part and parcel of the same thing for me. Ah, now how did you get started? You, you you do have to do a lot of writing, although now it's it's probably changed quite a bit since you started uh, with your public relations, marketing, and advertising. Now there's a lot of video involved. Uh, it, there's always been audio, but maybe less print because even now with we went from print books to eBooks, and now I'm hearing that audio books are really gaining a lot of a lot of traction now, but how did you get started when you when you first started out? How did you get started with public relations, marketing, and advertising? Did you start working with newspapers, a local magazine? How did you get your foot in the door? Well, that's a, that's interesting. When I got to college, um, I had I had taken some advanced placement tests and wound up being put in advanced placement French, and I had no business being there. I'm very good at taking tests, and I look for patterns. Uh, I don't intentionally do it, but I look for patterns. So I, I, I scored very high on my French aptitude achievement test, and yet I was awful at French, really never could get, get a handle on it. And so by midterm on first quarter of my freshman year, I was looking to fail the class. I had to get out of it. There was only one major open to me that did not require a foreign language, and that was journalism. So I changed my major to journalism, dropped the French class, and then um, decided I really like this. So I, I went on and um, took every writing course they had available to us and actually got published while I was still in college. I still have a photo of the first check I ever got from a publisher for $80, which was, that was huge. That was more than 10% of what it cost me for a quarter in college. So I was excited about that, and that was, I think, in 1972. Um, wow. But I took all the writing courses. When I got out of school, I, I got a PR job, but I also worked for a newspaper, a magazine. Um, I did a radio talk show, and I was a TV news cameraman on the weekends for a local TV station. So I had a chance to communicate in a lot of different ways um, before settling primarily on, on public relations. And I guess the, the first book that I wrote that was published was about what I did in, in the field of public relations, which was hospital public relations. And um, so I wrote a couple of books on that and about other aspects of hospital marketing and public relations when it was all very brand new. It, just, it really just gotten started at that time. So it, it gave me an opportunity to write 10 books quickly and make a fair amount of money. Um, 
my bestseller at that time was I, I made one hundred thirteen thousand dollars from it, which was you know a time when I was making twenty four grand a year. That was really good money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's not and bad that's money now, Ned. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. But it was really great then. And um, but I quickly found that while I'm very good at writing nonfiction. My real passion is fiction. I love to create things. Um, a lot of the books that I write are ghost-written books for clients, helping them to get their story told. They have a story, but they're not good at writing it themselves. So I help them out. And um, so I think about 17 of my books were ghost-written for different clients. Um, wow. And my, my most recent book was one where I took a, a, a client's uh, doctoral dissertation he had gotten a, 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 a doctorate of divinity and I turned it into a book and believe me it's a long reach from a doctoral dissertation to a book that people might want to buy and read so that was a big challenge but it was an interesting one and the subject matter kind of was close to close to my heart um, it's about how um, mega churches are doing things that would help other churches in their own journeys or even businesses that we could businesses could learn from mega churches. Um, I'm not confident that, that many businessmen are going to read a book based on what churches do just because that's not how they see things making right. sense. But it's all there if they want it. And it'll be published mm. uh, early in, in 2020. Okay, and what's the title of that book? And then I want to ask you another question uh, around your 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 start into the marketing, advertising, publishing. What was that? What's the title of that book? Where the churches and the, the business owners, leaders might be able to find some benefit in reading the book. Um, you know, the, the, the title is still in play. Typically, the title's the last thing that I come up with, and the uh, the, the my client, the named author is currently considering several different titles. But it'll be about business lessons from mega churches. Something along okay. that line. It's okay. straightforward okay. nothing cute or fancy because it's you know, it's a very pragmatic and, and and useful book. Okay. Was it was it easier again, I'm going back to when you first started your career in the seventies, was it easier to get to get started, get your foot in the door in the marketing, advertising, public relations space back then? Absolutely. Was it just as competitive? It was easier? It was not. I graduated from college during the recession, and 80% of the people in my graduating class took jobs outside of the PR or journalism field. They were just glad to get a job. But I I held out. I, I, I... I, I enrolled in graduate school, so if people ask me, what are you doing now? I say I'm in graduate school, but I'm willing really like to move out and get a job. I didn't want to seem like I was just unemployed. And I held out, and, and uh, about four months after I graduated, I was able to get a job in the PR field. And that was probably the smartest decision I had made in my career up to that time, is to not assume that I couldn't go there just because, mm. you know, the business market was so bad. So I hung in there. I did did what I wanted to do, and managed to, to get a, a good entry level job, in which I was writing two magazines for a uh, for an insurance company, one for the 
in-house employees, another for the field people. And um, I had to turn out a lot of copy every month. And so it kept me busy. I, I mean, I, I went from college to writing eight hours a day every day. And what a great experience that was. Mm. Now, what 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 drove the marketing and advertising fields? And I definitely want to get around to your books. But was it radio? Was it newspaper? What drove it? It's so different now. What drove it? Uh, what was the major resource that you used to get the message out about the clients you supported? Radio was bit, much bigger back then. It's it's it, television is very very small now as well. Right, and that's important. That's an important question. Uh, at the time, and for the people I was working with, newspaper was the um, biggest, most obvious um, media. And I learned how to get coverage in, in newspapers, how they worked, what they wanted, and how to give it to them. But um, live radio interviews, like we're doing right now, um, were the most effective. The problem was in those days that without the internet, if you didn't hear the radio show, it was gone. Yes. You know. Yeah. But now the show will be saved. The URL will be there, and whenever people want to learn about what we're talking about today, they can click on that and go to it. That makes radio much more flexible. And of course, today there's internet radio as well as radio, but I like the intimacy of a one-on-one that you get in radio or in television. Um, and I've done a fair amount of television as well. Um, but right now, the biggest impact you're going to get is on the Internet. The problem and the challenge is to get heard on the Internet. It's very difficult. So I developed a way for, my, for myself and for my clients to get heard, to create what I call a virtual platform, which is, uh, you know, a platform is what authors are supposed to have. These are the people that they can connect with on social media. And the idea being that by connecting with them, they're going to do what you ask. Well, unfortunately, um, I've got several thousand Facebook friends or followers or what they call them, but I only know maybe 50 of them. The rest are just people who said, can I follow you? And I said, yes. Or I asked them, can I follow you? And they just say, yes, and then they follow me. But we don't know each other which means if I ask them to do something, the odds of them doing it are pretty small. They've got no buy-in. They've got no reason to want to help me. Um, Some will, but most won't. However, if you go to a Facebook group that is topically based around what your book is about, you find people that are already bought in on the topic. They're interested not in you, but in the topic. And if you then go there and use your social media skills to uh, get known, become known, to that group of people, which is not that hard, um, then when you're ready to go, you're going to have a base of people that will follow you. I'll give you, for, for instance, right before the show, I did a search, and um, I asked, I, I searched uh, Facebook for the top ten, uh, or just for the for mystery writers, mystery, you know, mystery, murder mystery kind of topics. And the first ten that came up, not the biggest one, not the most important one, just the first ten that came up, would reach 39,800 people. That's huge. And I'm going to assume there's some overlap there because people are, um, you know, if they're interested in the topic, they're going to join them one. So let's just say that's really 20,000 different people. If you get half of 1% to do what you ask them to do, which is to say buy your book, 
You just sold 100 books. And you can keep repeating that, and it doesn't have to be limited to 10 groups. I just use that as a for instance. I have in my database over 100 groups that uh, uh, are on Facebook about murder mysteries because I've got a client who's a mystery writer, and my next novel is going to be a murder mystery. So I'm interested in that. And that's why I chose that group. But I've got groups for, for you know, Christian authors, for murder mystery, for romance writers, uh, for nonfiction, all kinds of things. And I can go in and create awareness for myself and my clients and eventually for my book using it. And every writer ought to do that. They don't, and I'm surprised they don't, but, but every writer ought to. Okay. See, that's that marketing. <laughs> There's yes, that marketing ma'am. coming in. Now, 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 how did hospitals, what, what made hospitals come to you, or did you go out to them and start marketing with hospitals? That's not, that's not a field as a, somebody who's done some marketing that I would even think I would have thought about. How did that relationship come about? Okay, uh, at the time I was um, working for a, a community college in Columbia, South Carolina, as their PR director. And I had some issues with the uh, senior management and thought I might be happier somewhere else. So I started looking around, and I had made contact with all the hospitals in the town because we were going to build a healthcare campus. We were kind of like a um, a, a two-year college that prepared people for real work, not just liberal arts things. So we were a feeder more to like a, a, a Clemson or a Georgia Tech than we were for a University of South Carolina kind of uh, education. And one of the, we, our deal was one, if one hospital would build a campus for us, we would staff it with our faculty and our students and they'd get free labor. Um, the big county hospital in, in Columbia decided to do that, but the, the one out in the suburban county uh, they didn't do that, but they liked me. So they offered me uh, a freelance position to help promote a conference that they were doing. And I got it front-page newspaper coverage and some other things, and they sold out the, their, their conference far more than they expected. So they offered me a job. And this was at a time the Supreme Court had just ruled that doctors and other professionals could market and advertise. Up until that time, it was considered unethical to run an ad or even ah. do a PR campaign. Well, hospitals had always followed the rules the doctors had because many hospitals were founded by doctors. Uh, not so much anymore, but at the time that was a very common path. A doctor would create his own hospital. Uh, so I came into the field at a time when uh, it was all brand new. So at my hospital, we became the first one in South Carolina to advertise first on radio and then on television. And it caused something of a, a dust-up. Uh, a lot of other hospitals felt that it was unethical, even though the coach had said it wasn't. But that kind of publicity helped to reinforce what we were doing with the radio. And um, I got started in it because my new hospital, they'd opened a lot of new beds, thought that they, they'd get more patients, and then they could afford to pay me my salary. Only that didn't happen. And so the, I'd been there, I don't know, about six weeks, and the president of the hospital came to me and says, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, we're not, you know, it, we thought build it and they would come, but it didn't happen. Um, so we're going to have to let you go. I said, well, 
how long do I have? He says, I can give you a month. I said, what's my budget? He said, I can give you $1,000. So I put together a very low-budget radio ad campaign. But it was so successful that our hospital occupancy went up 6%, which equated to another $1.2 million to our uh, wow. bottom line. So I kept my job. I mean, that's why I, I did it was, you know, right, right, a, right. A, right. A, a pregnant wife, I, I wanted to keep that job. Um, but that's what got me started in it, and, and I was very successful with that because I understood advertising. At the time, I was working on my master's in advertising at the University of South Carolina, and I understood what went on in advertising. So I was able to use it, and a lot of the hospitals tried to compete with me, but they didn't understand the strategy. They just thought, oh, they're here advertising, it works. Theirs didn't work, but mine did, because I knew what I was doing. And uh, so it's the right place at the right time. Wow. Oh, my goodness. You definitely went in to the right field. I was going to ask you what inspired you to write Hospital Marketing Step-by-Step, and you just – how long had you been in the marketing and advertising field before you – you were in this situation, you got a wife expecting, you got a month, you got to make some work, you got a $1,000 budget. How long had you been working in this field to know what would work? Because radio doesn't always work. But you, you, I, 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 had been, I had been working about um, five years in the field. I graduated okay. in 73 and it took place in 78. So I didn't have a great deal of experience, but I had a great deal of good experience. What I learned was effective. And the reason I chose advertising and radio was because there are certain radio programs where people just listen, and that's drive-time radio, because they want to get the traffic reports, or they want to stay awake while they're driving to work. You know, the coffee hasn't kicked in yet, so they want to do that. So I picked drive-time, and um, what I did, rather than write out commercials that they could then read, I gave them talking points because the two disc jockeys that I went with, the morning drive time jocks, they were used to talking to people. They did interviews and things like that. And I thought they'd do better telling my story for me than if I just give it to them as a script. So I gave them talking points. And I came up with 12 different reasons why people might want to come to our hospital. One was because we were a brand new hospital and we had all private rooms. Well, private rooms was a big deal. Uh, all the other hospitals in town were semi-private. So that gave us a marketing advantage. And I did things like that. And what happened, and this was just, just luck. I did not know this. I'd love to take credit for it, but I didn't. Both of these men were married to women who were registered nurses who worked at my hospital. So they would, I'd, get, I'd pay for a 30-second ad. And they would talk maybe 90 seconds or two minutes about what was going on in the hospital that they had picked up from their wife. And their wives were happy where they worked, so it was always good stuff. And it was like, <laughs> this is fantastic. You know, I, you, you, can't, you can't, you know, sometimes just luck of the draw, things work out better than they expected. So I got really good endorsement advertisements from these people that thousands of people in the community we're used to listening to because they listen to them every morning when they drove to work. So that's how I oh, man. was getting into advertising. <laughs> and, hey, at least I was smart enough to recognize how lucky I was. But that oh, you know, yeah. then help other people um, come up with um, their own 
ways of advertising. For whatever you're advertising for, you got to have the right message. You got to have the right audience. Everything. So I, I've done a lot of a lot of different things. And and what I do in advertising, I do in marketing and in public relations. You know, in the, in the field, we say uh, um, PR is what you pray for, and advertising is what you pay for. And while I love to do successful advertising, I prefer to do successful PR because it actually I have to actually win the news media over so they want to talk about it. Which, you know, advertising you're paying them for the time and giving them the message, and you know, ah. there's no creativity there, not as much. Now, can you tell us before we start talking about your novels, if you can tell us about hospital marketing step by step? What are some of the key topics that you address in the book? Okay, well, what the, this book was produced in, and it came out in two massive three-ring binders. And what people got was uh, two chapters per month for a year. And one chapter would be on a marketing technique, like how to use television. The other one would be on how to market a specific service, like the emergency room or labor and delivery, something like that. So we talk about the product side of things and also the process side of things. And this was when marketing was just starting out. So each chapter started very basic on whatever the topic was. And then over a period of um, uh, 20 or 30 very large pages, um, they learn more about the process or more about the product and how to market it. And what we did was determine that the, the target was uh, hospital assistant administrators who had just been told that now they had, had to do marketing too, but they had never studied marketing. They had no idea what it was. So we, it, was a, it was a primer for them to um, help them with that. And we also determined that the um, – uh, that, the, that these people typically had a, a purchase authorization of $500, which means they could buy something for up to $500 and not have to ask anybody's permission. It was in their span of authority. So we priced the book at $497. And we printed up 1000 and we sold 1000 And then we wow. did another test run for those 1000 and we sold those too. So it was, you know, it was a book that sold out two press rooms and uh, – the price was so high that the royalties were very attractive. And, you know, another of the books that I, that was the most expensive, no, second most expensive book I wrote and the most successful one to me. One book I wrote was about, it was for Wall Street on on a profile of the five largest uh, for-profit hospital companies, which was something that was brand new at the time. And that one sold for $1,200 a piece, but these were stockbrokers that were buying it to help them figure out how to make money for their clients. So they were willing to pay that kind of money because it was a business expense. It didn't cost anybody out of their pocket. And they needed the research so they could use it. Um, another book I sold for $300 a copy. Um, these were, were great for me at the time because the royalties proved to be very, very successful. I mean, it, they didn't sell a lot of books, but they sold it at such a high price that, um, you know, it still was profitable for me and the publisher. And I got to the point where publishers were seeking me out to write them. I, instead of me having to go and pitch them on an idea, they came and said, hey, could you write a book on finances for non-financial marketers? And I said, I don't know anything about financing. And they said, exactly. You go to a couple of finance, <laughs> finance conferences. So, seriously, they wanted me to go to conferences, and whatever I could understand and put into a book, it would be like 
helpful to anybody else who didn't know what finance was all about. So I got a, a, an education, and I sold a book. And that was another one that sold out the whole press run. Typically, they would run for a thousand copies, and the publishers were thrilled to sell them all out. So um, that's how I got into it. And then the, the market kind of died because, you know, after I'd written 10 books on hospital marketing and some other people wrote their books on hospital marketing, it was no longer a big deal. When I started, it was brand new. Ten years later, it wasn't. So I moved on to other things. Um, you know, and that's who moved my cheese. And that's that's one thing uh, you definitely have to be prepared for in this world. People who refuse to change, even companies, especially like even in the re- retail space, they they didn't want to go online. They didn't. They they just didn't want those. I've seen big companies that were huge thirty years ago fold because they didn't want to change. So you got to see when the change is coming, you got to get ready to go with it because if not, you just you could become history. You gotta you gotta be willing to shift gears and see things are changing. So it's time for me to shift. And, and and change as well. That said, you've done hospital marketing, advertising, public relations. How you got started? You initially wanted to go in the military. You said you failed the eye test, uh, and then you went into the, then then this, this space with the uh, marketing, advertising, and that you had so much success, like with your book, Hospital Marketing Step by Step, and the other books that you wrote. So I want to ask you now, just shifting gears a little bit here. Is bloody you? You didn't ever give give up. It seems your passion for the military. You never you never abandoned it. So that said, is mil- bloody skies over bloody ridge? Is this your first novel, Ned? No, no. That was um, I wrote a series of ten novels um, uh, in, about uh, eight to ten years ago that I published uh, on Kindle directly, uh, and that was one of those. My goal was to build, uh, to create um, a series of maybe 15 novels and then publish them in print form in a series the way Webb Griffin does, you know, where you've got a single topic and you have the same characters kind of overlapping from book to book. But he covered in his book, in his series, The Core, about the Marine Corps in World War II, you know, you follow a few characters through some major battles that the Marine Corps was in and you get real insight into what was going on there. I wanted to do that kind of thing, and I wrote the first ten of them, and one of them was Bloody Skies Over Bloody Ridge, which is a fictional retelling of an actual air battle at the, during the Battle of Guadalcanal, where uh, three planes, that's all we could get off the ground. We, you know, it was a real shoestring operation. But they stopped a, a, a Japanese attack that would have taken the airfield and, and ended the campaign as a failure, as a defeat. Uh, and it was really heroic. And uh, because of the nature of the attack, two of the three planes were shot down. Uh, their mm. pilots survived. And the third one was all shot up, but it was able to get back to the airfield. Nonetheless, they uh, were able to attack a, a huge mass of Japanese troops just as they were about to make a final assault on what became known as Bloody Ridge. They did assault all night, five or six different waves of attacks. And the Marine defenders were just about out of ammunition and that were completely worn out, and and they would have failed. But except for these three planes, and what they did was they put, you know, they did what fighter bombers do. They put the, the their weapons on target, and the Japanese were forced to abandon the attack. And this happened. It, it happened just the way 
I describe it. Only I use fictional characters, and you you know, some of who had been in in some of the other books in the series, um, leading up to that battle. So that was one of them. But the series goes is is Airworld Pacific. If anybody goes to Kindle and looks me up, my name Ned Barnett, and then looks up Airworld Pacific, they'll see all of them there. And some of them are are long. Some of them are short novellas or whatever, I took a specific battle or specific incidents and told the whole story of it. And I didn't worry about the length. It was just however it came together. And I hope someday to return to that series and finish them. But right now that's just something that's sitting there in the background. Um, I've talked to some uh, people who helped me. And in the next year or two, I'm going to turn what I've got there into books, into printable books, print on demand, and sell them through Amazon as well. And I think I can revitalize them at that point. But they, they continue to sell, um, not, not spectacularly, but they continue to sell. Every month I get a check from from Amazon. So I'm a happy person about those. Okay. Now introduce us to the book's main characters. Who are some of the, the pilots and some of the other main characters in the in the series itself? Okay. In the series itself, there is a there, there's a, a a combination of historical people who are there in the role they really played, but in a secondary capacity because I don't know them, and then there are primary characters who are fictionalized versions of those kinds of people, and one of them is a marine dive bomber pilot, and I have him in at Pearl Harbor on the morning of the attack, and in fact there were some marine dive bomber pilots there at the morning of the attack. And a few of them were actually uh, airborne when the attack came in. They were on an early morning training mission. And while everybody, and I'm doing air quotes here, everybody knows that only Army Air Corps pilots got in the air and, and attacked the enemy because that's what they were supposed to do. In fact, these Marines uh, were able to uh, uh, shoot down several Japanese planes. They just never got any credit because it wasn't the narrative. The narrative was the Army Air Force had six or eight or ten pilots who actually got airborne, and they really outperformed the Japanese. So it was kind of like a, you know, we've just had a terrible loss, but isn't this neat? But to have a, a dive bomber pilot shoot down two planes, that's not what they wanted to hear. That wasn't the message they wanted to send because it sounded too implausible. So they just never got any credit for it. But it really happened, so I, I tell that story. And then these, this dive bomber pilot later, he's at the Battle of Midway. And again, there were Marine dive bomber pilots at the Battle of Midway. And again, the, the conventional wisdom is that only the America's carrier-based airplanes did any damage to the Japanese fleet. But I found an official after-action report from the Marine Corps that said that one of these dive bomber pilots hit a Japanese carrier, the Kaga, with a 500-pound bomb. It didn't do a lot of damage, but they did hit it. That, you don't find that in the history books, but I found it as our kind of official, you know, official report. So I told that story, too. And then he went on to Guadalcanal, which was the first big offensive battle of the war, the first time we invaded an island and pushed the Japanese off of it. And so I follow all the what the dive bombers did by following this one character. So the audience gets to know who they are, who, who he is, and they care about him, and they follow him. And he does things that real dive bomber pilots did. It's just I'm using him as an archetypal character. I do the same thing with fighter pilots. I have two brothers who are um, 
both at Pearl Harbor when it was attacked. One's in the Army Air Corps and one's in the Navy. And they both get into the fighting in one way or another. And then they you follow them through the later battles of 1942. And all my stories take place in, in late 41 or 1942 when we were overwhelmed, we were outnumbered, and we were not winning. We started out that war losing. The Japanese did tremendous success early in the war. And to me, when you're overwhelmed and fighting against a, 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 an enemy that's got more combat experience than you do and has better planes than you have, it's a bit more heroic than when we had, you know, 1,500 carrier planes flying over Japan in 1945. Yeah, it was still very dangerous, and I respect them a great deal. But when you're fighting for everything, and it's basically win or die, that's what I wanted to show, that the spirit of the Americans were fighting against long odds and, and were able to beat, defeat the Japanese despite all the advantages they had. Now, I wanted to ask you, and it, I think you sort of alluded to the answer to this question, but I definitely wanted to ask you how much research, you're going back to the 1940s, how much research did you conduct and do you conduct while you're writing a military novel? Do you actually go visit some of these locations or do you like pour through library books and TV film and how much research do you do when you're actually putting the material together for the the book? that's That's a great, great question. I have in my personal library probably every book in print about Pearl Harbor, Midway, and Guadalcanal, and all wow. the other things that happened during that period of time. So I would read voraciously and make notes and things like that. And then I would do, in addition, I do internet research. And it was the internet where I found the documents that that prove that these incidents happened, but the historians had overlooked or ignored because it didn't fit the, 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 the message. And the message was set by people in the military early in World War II who were trying to overcome the great losses we experienced and to you know, support um, the morale of the um, uh, civilians who were, you know, they wanted to hear about successes. So they said, oh, well, we only had a few pilots get off the ground, but they really, you know, took care of the Japanese, so clearly we're, we're ready to take them on. That would not have worked well if one of the pilots was flying a, a slow uh, dive bomber, but still was able to be successful that way. It just didn't fit the meme, we would call it today, so they didn't cover it. But the information is still there if you know where to look, and I would just become, you know, extensively look at this and get what I needed. It was, you know, so that's how I did it. And because I've been reading military history my whole life, um, I, I I knew what to look for. I mean, I may have read something 40 years ago, and I don't know where I heard it, but I remembered something, so I went and looked for it and found it. You know, I was I had to ask you this. We've had other authors on, and they when they write historic novels, and there's an a niche audience for that, and they love historic books, and it's a great way to learn, and it's just also entertaining and engaging, but. I've had authors tell me they do extensive research, just like you said, all the books you've read. Because I've had one writer said, uh, who was on Off the Shelf, if you say a certain type of food was served in a cafe, they use these certain type of napkins or whatever. She said that readers who love historic fiction will tell you, oh, they didn't use those type of napkins then, or women didn't wear those type of shirts. 
or the collars on the men's shirts weren't like that back then. So you, you, I mean, the research, the people, do you hear from readers who may say to you, oh, no, Ned, that wasn't how it went, or you got that right? Um, I have heard from both, and I always appreciate hearing from both. Um, I always want to learn, and if I, 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 I think I'm a good researcher, but I'm no, by no means infallible. And if I made a mistake, I want to know so I can fix it. And one of the nice things about Kindle is that if you find a mistake, you can fix it for future buyers. So I'm always on the lookout to learn more things. And new books keep coming out, and they may challenge some of my thoughts, and I can go back and, and fix things if I want to. Uh, certainly I'll do that before I publish them in print form. I'm going to go through each one of them and uh, do a final edit and make sure that everything is based on what I currently understand. And I just I really enjoy it because I enjoy history. I enjoy the research. I was I minored in history in college, and I might have majored in it if there was any way to make a living doing it, but there wasn't. Uh, and I always intended uh, – my college education was going to give me a career. Um, I wasn't a liberal arts major. I didn't want to just learn for learning's sake. There's nothing wrong with that, but I wanted a career. I knew I'd be out there working, and I'd rather work in something that I enjoyed and was trained for than get a job in sales, you know, for something I don't care about. It just wasn't what I wanted to do. So um, I, I love to research. And I do feel voraciously, and because I, I've got so many books and I've read so many books, I knew where to start. And you know, I was going to ask you if history was a passion of yours, and it, indeed it is, because you've been on the History Channel several times. What were, the, what were just like maybe two topics, because I have a, several other questions I wanted to ask you, but what were maybe like just two topics that you spoke about when you did appear on the History Channel? Okay, sure. I, 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 was, I appeared on nine History Channel programs. Uh, most of them were modern marvels. And they were about uh, technology, military technology. And the two that are, <clears throat> excuse me, the two that are most interesting to me, well, one was called Submarine Disasters. And it was about submarines that sank, not in wartime, but because there was some flaw in the sub and they sank. And um, <clears throat> so I, I, I researched that and I put together an hour program on that subject. What thrilled me was that two of the people that we interviewed for the program were Tom Clancy and Clive Cussler, who both mm. write naval-related fiction, and I was passionate fans of both. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to go and meet them. They filmed them at where they lived. Our crew went there to film where they were. But in the final edit, it looked like I was talking to them. So I was very thrilled to be on the same place was as, as these two gentlemen – because they were role models for what I'd like to write. And the other one was on World War I technology. And so I shot this, and the, the studio I worked with, they were doing so much work at that time. They were in overcrowded facilities. They'd taken a storage closet and converted it into a little set. And it looked like I was in one of the trenches in World War I. And it was just, you know, boxes with, camouflage netting straight over it and all that kind of stuff. But the room, with the TV lights in there, it was a, over 100 degrees. And oh. it had no air conditioning because it was a closet. And it was oh just really a, a challenge. But here's what was so cool. 
is the last survivor who had fought in the trenches during World War One. He was 106 years old. He lied about his age and got into combat at age 16. He was now 106 years old, and he we we interviewed him for that program. And oh my unfortunately, he, he died before the show came out. But we were able to capture that element of history, that moment of I was there. And he was fascinating. He was still sharp. He was lucid. He understood what he was saying. He remembered things. It was it was remarkable. And I have a great degree of uh, respect for any veteran from any side of any war. Um, because people, whether they're fighting for our side or the other side, they were fighting for their country. They were fighting, fighting mm-hmm. for their family and their friends. And, you know, they were willing to put their, lay down their life for their family, for their friends, for their, for their country. And that's an honorable thing. So I love getting to know these people and talking to them. This guy was just, just absolutely remarkable. And I, I felt really honored that, that I was able to, to be on that program. With him. So those are the two. Wow. Oh, my goodness. What a life. What a life, Ned, so far. And your journey continues. And I, th- I thank you again for being here on Off the Shelf with us. To come down to the last 10 minutes of today's show, want to want to switch gears again and ask you, when did you launch Barnett Marketing? Barnett Marketing, I launched that in uh, 19, late 1985 uh, under a different name. It was uh, I had a business partner at the time, so it was BNW Healthcare Marketing Communications. But uh, that that business ended, and I guess kept going as an independent consultant. I've had several other businesses, but Barnett Marketing, as it is now, since um, 1994, when um, and it took the name because it was a name that was available as a URL. Uh, so it had been Barnett Associates, but I, I it, that was taken by a company in Holland. So I had to uh, come up with a different name. So I named a business based on what I created a, a website on. But it's been going oh. since, um, well, as I say, since 1985. So I guess about uh, um, 35 years. Wow. Oh, my goodness. What are some of the services that you offer? Uh, to, to who, who, who is your audience? Are writers a part of your audience? And what are some of the services that you offer through uh, your, your marketing firm? Okay, well, first and foremost, uh, we are in our, uh, uh, I have an author service company. And what I do is find out what authors need at whatever level that they are at and help them with that. So if they don't have a book, I help them write a book where I ghostwrite it for them. If they've got a book and it hasn't been edited, I get it professionally edited. I either do it myself or bring somebody in depending on the type of book it is. Um, and then, uh, if they have it edited but not published, I'll help them self-publish it or find a publisher. Um, although for most startup authors, that's no longer the attractive option it used to be. Uh, we get no advances to speak of, and they take most of the money. And you still have to do the marketing, so you're going to take most of the money yourself. So I help people self-publish. And then that's when I get into marketing and promotion. And, again, it depends on what they need. Some people want me to do it all for them. Other people want me to coach them. So I've got clients right now where I coach them on what they're doing, and I guide them, and then they do it based on what I've, I've shown them. Others where I'm doing it all. 
They just, you know, they'll show up for a radio interview, but that's about it. They want me to do it because that's not their field, and they know that they're, it's not, and they want to uh, want to do that. And, in fact, one of the books that I'm, I'm going to have published four new books in the coming year, and one of them is going to be uh, a book about marketing and promoting your book. So I'll be putting all this out there. I mean, I've done blogs on this and, and write, you know, columns and articles for a variety of publications on how to do this. But I'm taking everything I've learned in 35 years of doing this and putting it into a book, and it's in the final editing process right now. So it'll be coming out in, um, I hope, in the spring. Okay. What, can you share three to four steps that you've taken? You've gone hospital marketing, you, your, your history, your nonfiction books. You've written 39 and published 39 books, and then you still have four more now in the works. But can you share three to four steps that you've taken there that you found to be effective firsthand, not just something you've heard about, but you've used and you've found it to be effective at getting the word out about, about your books? Sure. Uh, first of all, what I talked about earlier was the um, creating the virtual platform. As far as I've been able to tell, nobody else was doing that when I first started doing it. There may be, but I couldn't, I've never been able to find them if they were. And that is hugely powerful in get, building a fan base quickly. Uh, you have to be very careful about that because these groups are, um, they have one strike and you're out. You're not allowed to self-promote. You can talk about what you know, but you have to do a two-step process. If you want to promote your book, you have to write a blog about it on your website and then invite people to come see the blog. And when they do, that's when they find out about the book and, and can be encouraged to buy it. So that is one thing that I really, really like to do. Uh, another thing I think is very powerful is creating uh, short YouTube videos about the book and the author and the writing life and the process. If people like a book you've written, they're going to want to know how you did it as a writer. And this is a chance where you can talk one-on-one -on -one with, with your fans uh, and let them know how you did what you did, and that enriches their, their experience. And whenever you do that, you're going to build more fans. You're going to word, word of mouth. So that is another really important and really powerful thing I've done. A third thing I've discovered is while email is useful for many things, if you want to set up a, a, a reading event at a bookstore or a museum or something like that, you have got to go in person and meet face-to-face -face with the people. I had a client in the, earlier this year. He'd written a great book, but the publisher did nothing for it, so we, we helped him take it back from the publisher and republish it as a self-published book. Then because it was upon about a, a nuclear disaster at the Nevada test site in, in 1970 that the government hushed up, uh, but 86 people were exposed to deadly radiation, and he was the attorney representing them. And that's what his book was about. Um, I had written to the – there's a, a, a Smithsonian Museum here in town in Las Vegas that is the National Atomic Testing Museum. Um, great place. Uh, and Smithsonian, it doesn't get any more credible than that. I'd written them several emails and never heard back from them. So I ca called up the client and said, Larry, meet, meet me in their parking lot at 10 o'clock and bring some books. So we walked in, walked into the gift shop, and I said – Excuse me. Who is uh, who buys product for you? This woman, one woman, stepped up and said, "I do. Why?" And I showed her the book and said, "This is the author of this book, and we'd like to see about you, you know, 
uh, placing the book in your bookstore. And I'd like to see about having him speak at a conference that you have. They, and they hold several conferences throughout the year. She took one look at it and says, yes, I'll take 25 copies. Wow. And then the director of the museum contacted us and said, I heard all about what you're doing. Larry, we want you to come and give the first of a series of presentations in 2020. So he'll be going there and they'll promote it. There'll be a big crowd of people there at the museum. And he'll be talking about his book. And they'll be signing the book and, um, you know, selling it. Well, the museum will sell it. He'll get the royalties, but he won't be, you know, doing the selling himself. But he'll he'll take the books and autograph them personally. Now, all the books that we have at the museum, and this is something, and this is a, a, something all authors need to know about. They're all autographed. That makes them more valuable to people who buy. There are some people that just really love to have books signed by their authors. It makes them feel important, or whatever it makes them feel. So always, if you're selling a book, autograph it. Always, if you're giving it to a bookstore, as we did with the with the, the museum bookstore there, we give them 25 copies. They're all autographed, so they can promote it and autograph by the author, and that helps them yeah. sell. And one of the things we did was that you know we're set up now to to be able to deliver the books as any as, as any publisher would. But the first batch of books they sold, they said, we want to sell something on consignment to see if it sells. And so we said, fine. And Larry had the copies. He brought them by. And as they sell them, they pay us for them. And when they get to a lower level, they, they, they renew it. But it was, it was the way to go for them because that way they didn't have any financial risk. Right. We were confident the book, if they got the book, they would sell one of the things they told us, the, the, the person who took the books, says, you know, we have an exhibit about this in, this incident. They actually had something in the museum about that. So it was a natural wow. So, again, but they'd ignored all my emails, which I thought were good, persuasive selling emails. But show up in person, and they couldn't be any nicer. And I've had lots of experiences like that, but that was just the most clear cut of not getting any traction with email or phone calls. But you show up in person, you become a real person to them, and boom, there you go. So those are some lessons that I found that are very effective across the board. Yeah, getting out in person, even with the internet, I I when I used to hit the road, or when I hit the road, my book sales would spike. If, if there's something about being at a, at an event in person, it, 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 online alone, you can't you could be successful online alone, but I think it's a good way to get a lot of quick. Uptick is to go to a large event or or an effect an event effective around your book in person. Now, where can off the shelf listeners get copies of your books, Ned? Okay, the books that are currently available, a number of them I wrote before the internet, so they're no longer in print and not available. But if you go to Amazon and search my name, you'll find all the books that I have in print now. And in the coming year, I'm going to do four new books. Um, and one of them is a science fiction uh, romance. Uh, one of them is a book on how to market your book. A third is a murder mystery that I'm very excited about. It's what I'm passionate about. And the fourth is a, is a, is a book on the history of race and politics in America. I, I grew up in the South during the civil rights era. I worked uh, with uh, lots of groups in, in you know, helping to earn uh, equal rights for everybody. Uh, I helped, uh, for instance, um, 
desegregate the um, Methodist Church in Georgia. And um, it's always been a passion of mine. And uh, for a number of years, my son, who's a college professor, taught at a historically black college. And I knew that I had done something right in raising him so that he was comfortable in that role and was accepted in that role because of because of who he is. So it's been a, something that I've always been passionate about, and I wanted to get out there. And I think basically found a patron who agreed. He's not a writer, but he'd like to see that get out. And that, so that's on the front burner for this year as well. Okay. Now, can you tell us if you're on any social media media platforms where our off-the-shelf listeners can find you online? Yes, you can find me at, uh, on Facebook, Ned Barnett. Uh, I think there are three Ned Barnett's in this country. I'm the one that's in Las Vegas and is the writer. There's a newspaper man in, in uh, North Carolina and a slip and fall attorney in Dallas. I'm not either one of those. But you can find <laughs> me on, on on Facebook, and that's probably the best way. I do do some stuff on Twitter, but I'm not real active unless I've got a client that needs to be there. Um, okay. But I, I, I do an awful lot on Facebook. Okay, okay. We have had the absolute pleasure of of speaking with Ned Barnett today. He is actually, you guys published more than 39 books, and including nonfiction and fiction, and some of his titles are State of the Art in Hospital Advertising and Hospital Marketing, Step by Step, Bloody Skies Over Bloody Ridge. That's a, a series, First Shot, and Lafayette, We Are Here. Encourage you to visit uh, Ned online at barnettmarkham.com. That's B-A-R-N-E-T-T-M-A-R-C-O-M.com. Thank you, Ned, for being here with us, and thank you to each of our listeners. Please come back here next Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we will have another great guest on deck for you. And remember, you are awesome. You are amazing. You are incredible. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Ned, I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.